If you have your Bible with you, you can open to Exodus chapter 33. We'll be in verses 12 through 23, finishing out the chapter today. Exodus 33, 12 through 23. Before we start, I've been... Uh, wrestling just as just for my own personal good and benefit um, been wrestling with uh, this section of 32 through 34 trying to um, think and find new ways to reflect on uh, the seriousness of what is happening here in the people's failure with the golden calf uh, I know oftentimes uh, spending a little bit of time in a passage you can lose some of the sense of urgency um, or um, the angst that is intended to be felt hanging over this passage. And so as I've, uh, each section in from chapter 32 on, I've tried to revisit each new section, reminding myself of the fact that in order to, to appreciate what is happening here as Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and as he pleads, um, for God to be gracious to them of how dire and desperate their situation is, right? Because more often than not, or oftentimes, once I read about the failure with the golden calf and the idolatry, then, you know, I, I sort of begin to lose sight of that or forget about that. And so I, I want to come back over and over again and say this everything here, this whole program, in which God has redeemed a people for himself, is hanging by a thread unless God purposes to show grace and mercy where it's not deserved. And so in the time that I had in, in the word and in prayer, I just uh, by simple way of illustration, we talked about in chapter 32 how the, the shock of what happens with the idolatry of the people is that they turn, they break covenant with the Lord before Moses has ever come down the mountain to give them God's revelation, his instruction, and specifically the, the tabernacle blueprint so that God could dwell among his people. They have entered into covenant with the Lord before Moses goes up, and before he comes down, they've already broken it. So it would be something like, something like, not exactly, but something like this. A man goes and takes a wife, a woman for himself to be his wife. They escape from the pressures of this life to enjoy a honeymoon together. They're at the honeymoon suite. And after they have been there for a period of time, the, the husband says, wait here for me, honey. I have the blueprints that I've drawn up for our dream home. I'm going to take it to the architect make sure that he has all that he needs so that he can begin to build our home so that we can start our life together. And he goes off to do that. And he comes back a few hours later to find that his wife has shacked up with another man. That's Exodus 32. If you were that husband or that spouse, what would you do in that moment? Would you be calm? Would you be measured? Doubt it. 
So thinking through that lens, at least for me, and I don't know about you, but at least for me has been helpful as a way to think in, in with that illustration about what then happens as the passage continues to develop. So the Lord tells Moses what has happened. Moses is completely unaware in chapter 32 and says, leave me alone, Moses, so that my anger may burn and I'm gonna destroy these people. I'm done. Divorcing, destroying, I'll start over. I'll find someone else. Moses pleads with the Lord on the spot to restrain his anger. Righteous though it is, restrain your anger and don't annihilate these people. And God restrains his anger. Moses returns to plead with the Lord and begs for the Lord to grant pardon to his people for their infidelity and their gross immorality and sin. And the Lord is not willing to grant it, at least not at this time. In fact, the most that he will do, having decided that he will not destroy the people, is to say, I will send the people to the land, to the home that I was preparing for them. I'll give them what I have promised, but I won't give them myself. They'll get the promise, but it will be absent my presence. And even then, the Lord says to the people in chapter 33, take off all the gold, all the happy things that you're wearing, go into mourning while I decide what it is that I'm going to do with you. We still don't know ultimately what God is going to do with these people, even though he's extended them a fig leaf by offering to get them into the land. And that brings us to our passage today where Moses pleads with the Lord for a third time, asking for the Lord to be kind and gracious to a people who are not deserving of a second chance. Follow along with me, beginning at 33.12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, or we might say something like, Look, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people, and the Lord said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, 
I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our many sins. Chief among them is that we have prized and treasured other things above you. Our true true reward, our true delight. How foolish of us to think that we could find the safety, the security, the fulfillment, the rest in other things that can only be found in you. And yet, Father... Because of your rich mercy and grace, we ask that as we spend this time in your word that we would be awestruck over who you are to your people by your very nature. Pardon and forgive us again for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and help us to sing with joy because of our safety and security with you. It's in his name that we ask this. Amen. So two ways to start off just in, in looking at this in a, in a broad picture sort of way. There are two primary requests that Moses makes in the verses that we just read. And depending on how your version reads, it would be signaled or singled out by the statement of Moses saying something like, I pray you do this. So in verse 13... Moses says, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you. And then later, his second formal request comes in verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. What this passage is after, or what this passage is depicting, is Moses' pursuit or desire that God would return his favor to his people. Moses wants to know that God will be for his people and not against them. Not in a casual way, but in a very close and personal way. So we're going to try to make two observations. Number one, in verses 12 through 16, as Moses seeks God's favor for himself and for the people, we want to see that the substance of God's favor is his presence. If you want to know whether or not God favors you, all you need to ask is, has he given me his presence? And number two, 
The sight of God's glory confirms his favor. These two requests that Moses make, they build on each other. The second builds on the first. The substance of God's favor is his presence, and the sight of God's glory confirms his favor. So the first thing to do in looking at what Moses asked for in the first request is to try to make sense out of what to our ears or in our reading doesn't seem like a very direct or straightforward request. What is, Moses, what is Moses asking for when in verse 13, he says to let me know your ways that I may know you? All right. We probably need to take verses 12 and 13 together to try to find some way to articulate what Moses is after. In verse 12, Moses says, look, you've told us to leave, to go to the promised land, that you're going to send an angel with us, but I don't know who this angel is. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know where you are in all this. Okay, so we have an angel go with us, but where are you going to be while all this is happening? That, that's the gist of what Moses is saying to the Lord. And so when he says in verse 13, please, or I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you. You're sending us away from you. You're telling me that you have a special relationship with me, that I have favor, your favor resting on me, that you know me by name, a special intimate knowledge, and yet you're keeping me in the dark. I don't know what's happening here. So I'm asking you to show me your ways. Here's what Moses is asking for. Moses wants to know where God will be and what God will be to his people. In the midst of their sin, in the midst of their rebellion, in their weakness, in their frailty, in their waywardness, the fickleness of their heart, undeserving as they are, where are you in all this, Lord? What are you going to be for and to this people? Because all of this started back in Exodus chapter 3 with the Lord calling Moses out by name. And the Lord saying to Moses, when Moses had doubts about this whole idea of bringing a people up out of Egypt, the Lord said, I am will be with you. I am what you need. I am what the people need. And all that the people need, I will be that to them in a real and present way. Is that who you are now? Or, because of our sin, the people's sin... Have you pulled back on that? Are you no longer with us and for us? I want to suggest that in all of the twists and turns of life, this is the most fundamental question that we as God's people can ask. whether it's sin or it's suffering, 
whether it's cancer or it's unemployment, whether it's marriage or it's child-rearing, decision-making, dreams, plans, what we want to know, what our hearts desperately need to know, whether we recognize it or not, what we need to know is the answer to this question. Where are you and what are you to me in all of these areas and all of these twists and turns that come in life? You hear what Moses says later on? Just a few verses later, we're skipping ahead a little bit. When the Lord says that my presence will go with you, which apparently is what Moses is after. Moses being very open and honest and transparent, when he hears that the Lord says, my presence will go with you, what is his response to that? Verse 15. If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Better to be in a wilderness with the Lord than to be in the promised land without him. That's a man who knows that his good is the nearness of God. Everything in this world, everything in this system, this order is trying to convince us that we can have all the goods that our hearts desire, that we can find rest, that we can find peace, and that we can get it apart from God. It's nonsense. Nothing lasts but God. Nothing and no one will satisfy but God. Bring what you will. Take me wherever you want, so long as I know that you are there with me. Some of you know exactly what Moses is talking about in the depths of despair and suffering, when you felt like you were going to be crushed under the weight of the burdens of this life, you say, and yet, my time with the Lord was so sweet. Every time I turned and I found him, I realized I could go another day. When I thought everything was being stripped away, they couldn't take God, and that was enough. That's what Moses wants. That's what the people need. They need God. We need God. There's also in verse 16 the attitude that Moses communicates to the Lord about the importance of God going with his people, being present and active in their life. After saying in verse 15, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. 
For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? Do you hear what Moses is saying? If you were to take us and put us squarely in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, if we were to be safe and secure, if we were to be comfortable, if we were to be happy, if we were to have thriving families and prosperous work to do, and we didn't have you, we are, not, we are no different than anyone else on the face of the earth. All we have is exactly what they have. There's nothing different. What singles you out as God's people is not your job. It's not your career. It's not your success. It's not your marriage. It's not your family. It's God. The world can duplicate. They can mock all of that. The world can create jobs. The world can get marriages. The world can get family. The world can't get God. How do we know if God favors Edgewood? If we can say God is here in our midst. That's all we need. I would rather have a hundred people with God than a thousand without him. Because a hundred people with God is a sweetness and is a joy that you cannot buy. All fine and good for them Right? God is going to prove that he is with them by his presence shown in the cloud or by the pillar of fire. Where does that leave us? Has God changed the way that he's worked, the way that he shows his favor to his people today from the way that he showed his favor to his people yesterday? Certainly not. Hold your place here and go to John chapter 14. John 14, look at verses 16 and 17. Before we read, how do you know that God loves his people? He made himself known by the presence of his son. God became a man and dwelt among us. The sign of God's favor 
was the presence of his son in our midst. Once again, we say, good for them. We don't have that now. Here's what we do have. On the authority of Jesus himself, John 14, verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. How does God make his presence known to you and me today, according to Jesus? By his spirit that dwells within us. The world does not have a portion, does not have a part in the Spirit of the Lord. That's something that he gives uniquely to his people, to us. Paul says later in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, no man, no man knows the mind of another man except for the spirit that's in that man. Now we have received the Spirit of God so that we can know the mind of God. That's the Exodus. That's Moses asking for God to prove his favor to his people by making his presence known. And that's Jesus saying, my presence will be made known to you. The Father's presence will be made known to you so that you know you have the favor of God when he pours out his spirit to dwell in you and among you, church, permanently forever. So that not only do you know he is with you, you can actually know the very mind of God. The ultimate sign of God's favor to his people is when he gives himself to us. He cannot give us anything better because there is no one and nothing better than God. And if you have Christ, you have that. You don't need anything else. Go back to Exodus 33. Moses is so sneaky. Do you notice what Moses was doing? Who is the one person, who is the one person in this episode that God is not angry with? Moses. Because Moses was the one and only person who was not down with the people sinning, but was up in the presence of the Lord, removed and separated from all that. Moses is the only person that God is willing to listen to at this point. Moses is the only one who can commune with God. Moses starts off by saying, you have said about me that I'm special, that you favor me, that you know me in a special, unique way. And I'm asking you, Lord, to show me your favor to back that up. But do you, do you see what else Moses does? So sneaky. 
Look at verse 13. Therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so far so good, so that I may find favor in your sight. And then look at what he tacks on right at the end. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And then the Lord says in verse 14, my presence will go and I will give you rest. Not really sure who he's talking about there. Might still be talking directly to Moses. Look at what Moses says in verse 15. If your presence does not go, do not lead us up from here. For how can it be known, verse 16, that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are are upon the face of the earth? Do you hear what Moses is doing? Moses is leveraging, if we can put it so crassly, Moses is leveraging his favor with the Lord for the benefit of the people who are undeserving of that same favor. Okay, Lord, if you're going to be good and gracious and show me your favor, you're going to send your presence with me, well, I'm with the people. So that means if you're going to go with me and I'm with the people, you're going to have to go with me and the people. So if the people are going to get the Lord's favor shown in his presence, how will they get it? Because they've earned it? Because they deserve it? No. They'll get it because the one and only person who could make such a request has spoken up on their behalf and has secured for them something that they could not secure for themselves. Does that sound like anyone else? Turn to John 17. Just look at a couple places. John 17, verses 9 and 10. This is Jesus praying to his Father. Jesus says in verse 9, I ask on whose behalf? I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Look at verses 20 and 21. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word that they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you hear what Jesus is doing? The one man who can win God's favor for undeserving sinners is praying for the Father to be glorified 
through the perfect obedience of the Son, and then adding on to that, and all of this glory that you and I share, Father, I want to share with the people as well that you have given me. You know why you can be sure that you have God's favor? Because Christ asked for it on your behalf. Not because you earned it. Not because you secured it once it was given to you. Because the one man who could ever receive that kind of request being granted was the man who prayed for you. By name. Moses should be done. He's gotten what he wanted. God is no longer going to be distant and remote. He is going to be with his people for their good, for their benefit. God himself has granted Moses' request, I will be with you. I will let you know and see what it is that I am doing and where I'm going and what I'm going to do with and for these people. Not only is Moses sneaky, he comes across as being maybe even greedy. He could have just ended right there. I'm saying all this tongue-in-cheek, by the way. Moses is not being sneaky. He's not being greedy. We ought to pray like Moses, all right, just so we're all clear. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. So God is going to prove his favor to Moses by returning his presence to Moses and the people. Verse 18, then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. I think what Moses is asking for here, I think he's asking for additional confirmation. He's asking for a sign that what God has said he will do he will in fact do. Now, please listen. It is enough that God said, I will do this. His word is trustworthy and reliable. He does not owe Moses anything. He does not even owe Moses that granting the first request. He certainly does not owe Moses an additional sign to validate or confirm the guarantee, the promise that he has just given to Moses. But that's what Moses seems to be asking for. I don't just want to hear it. I want to see proof of it. That's what Moses is asking for when he asks to see God's glory. And how does God respond? Moses asked to see God's glory, and the Lord says, I will show you what? My goodness.
almost as if to say that as far as you're concerned, Moses, my glory is my goodness. I am so good that it makes me glorious. Stephen Charnock in his book, The Existence and Attributes of God, writes page after page after page after page talking about this attribute of God, this one attribute, his goodness. That should have been our sermon today. I should have just brought that book up and just read verbatim out of that. Let me just give you one line, one statement. Charnock says, reflecting on the goodness of God, says this... God's goodness is the true and genuine character of God. He is good. He is goodness. Good in himself, good in his essence, good in the highest degree, possessing whatever is lovely, excellent, desirable. The highest good because he is the first good. Whatever is perfect goodness is God. And whatever is truly goodness in any creature is a resemblance of God. Do you hear what Charnock is saying there? God is infinitely good. And that makes him glorious and worthy of our worship. Turn with me to Psalm 145. One of David's psalms, look at, look at how the goodness of the Lord shows up in this praise to the Lord. Skip down to verse 6, Psalm 145. Let me read verses 6 through 9. Men will speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They will eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will joyfully shout of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. However great the Lord is, that is how good he is. Do you hear that? Men are going to talk about your awesome works, your omnipotence, the fact that your power is without limit. David says, you know what else is without limit or boundaries? Your goodness. He is as good as he is majestic. He is as good as he is powerful. He is as good as he is all-knowing. He is as good as he is always present. He is infinitely good to his people, and he ought to be worshipped for that alone. We will come to the end of our days... And we will stand in the presence of the Lord, and we will sing. He has been nothing 
but good to me. Moses wants to see evidence, a sign of God's favor for his people. So he asked to see God's glory. And God says, you will see my glory in my goodness. We'll talk more about that next week because there's more to be said. But you will see the sign of my favor, proof of my favor with you by the glory of my goodness. Where, church, is the glory of God's goodness to be seen today? John tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld, we saw His glory, full of grace and truth. Jesus then says later, in John 11, 12, and John 17, Now the hour has come glorify your name. What hour is Christ talking about when he says, glorify your name? The hour of the cross, his death and resurrection. If you want to see proof that God favors you, look to the cross. There is no greater sign of God's glory and goodness to his people than his son suffering and bleeding on the cross for your sins and for mine. He is eternally and infinitely good to undeserving people like us. But there's one more thing that we want to draw attention to back in Exodus 33. Moses asked in verse 18 for a sign, for evidence of God's favor with his people. I don't just want to hear it, I want to see it. And so the Lord is going to do that for Moses. He's going to grant this unique request. Verse 19, the Lord said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And then notice, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. After granting these two requests that Moses has made, God rounds this out by making this statement. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. In other words, Moses, listen. You have asked for me to do these things for you and for the people, and I am. But, but, I do it not because I owe it to you, but because I freely choose to give it. God owes no man anything. That is what makes his goodness so unbelievable. He does not have to give anything, and he gives everything. 
three things we might say just briefly about this statement. One, to hear the Lord say, I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That ought to be at least a very sobering statement. Sobering in the sense that we are reminded that God will not be manipulated. There is no magic phrase, there is no magic prayer, there is no unique act or work by which you can win God's favor. <coughs> Number two. <clears throat> it ought to be comforting. The sobering element of this, that God freely gives his goodness as he desires, as he wills, falls on our ears as something that is ominous. It's not. Because God is not obligated to give his goodness or his mercy to anyone, but he does it freely of his own choice and will, that means that when he gives, he gives because he actually wants to give, not because he must give. In other words, because God is so free in giving of his goodness, he gives his goodness to the full. We don't wrestle from God a little bit of goodness. He gives goodness, and he gives it not in part or not in measures, but in full. He gives because he wants to give. And number three, this should be encouraging and comforting for God's people because if God is the one who freely gives under no obligation or constraint, it's the only way that we will find constant security. Are you, gonna belt, are you going to bet your goodness from God on your performance? Are you going to enter into a, tra a transactional obligation with the Lord and say, I tell you what, Lord, how about for every ounce of good that I do for you, you give me an ounce or two of goodness? <coughs> or <coughs> are you going to recognize, <coughs> I can't continue. <laughs> the goodness of God chokes me up. Are you going to recognize that your goodness, the goodness of God, is secure with you because that's just who God is, regardless of how well you perform or how faithful you are? Let's pray. Take just a moment to reflect on the beauty of God's goodness and his grace to you.
Father, would you enable us more and more to taste and see that you are good. Give us, we ask, by your spirit, the ability to meditate and to behold the beauty of the Lord revealed to us in your word, revealed to us in the person of your Son. Let us know your favor by your presence with us. We ask for that individually. We also ask for it to be true of us together as a church. And Father, let us know that at the end of the day, our security with you is because of you, not because of us. It is your nature to be good to your people, and you will never stop being good to us. May we worship you and follow you in the path of Christ by your spirit all the more for this. In Jesus' name, amen.